We've been in a, an incredible series for the last six weeks. This is uh, part six of our series called Connected, Hearing uh, God and Having the Courage to Respond. And this has been a great journey, an incredible journey that's teaching us as a church how to get better at not only hearing from God, but to get better at having the courage to just respond and to do what God has for us and to be receptive and open to his promptings and his leadings. As I mentioned last week, if you haven't been with us, I would challenge you to go on our website and to listen to the, to the other messages in this series because they will, they will help you to not only see where we've been and what we've been talking about, but they will help you then to discover where we're going and, and why this is so important to us in our life. Last week, we began the process of understanding the promptings God brings. And one of the things we talked about was this. For each prompting that we talk about, we're going to look at a story uh, from the scriptures. We're going to pose a question, ask a question, and then I want to offer a truth that can help us as we respond to God's promptings in our life. And the first one we looked at uh, last week is what I would refer to as a call to action. It's a call to action. And we looked at the life of Noah that's found in Genesis chapter 6. And if you know the story, if you were here with us last week, we, we understand that, that the main truth I wanted us to see was simply this. Noah lived out one aspect of faith that is so hard for us to do, and that is this, to obey when we don't understand what's going on and to obey when things don't make sense. It's to obey when things, when we don't know what, and we don't understand what's going on and to obey when it, when it really doesn't make any sense to us. And if you know the story of Noah, he lived in the desert 500 miles away from the largest body of water. It had never rained before, ever, and God asked him to build a boat, and not just any boat. It wasn't a rowboat, and it wasn't a sailboat. How many watch NCIS? Anybody watch NCIS? You know, Gibbs is always down in the basement building what? He's building a boat. Well, it wasn't that kind of a boat. Noah was charged with building basically a cruise ship that was going to house his family and two of every kind of animal on this planet. And it was enormous, and it took a hundred years. And it was hard to understand. It, was, it didn't make sense, and yet he obeyed. And because of his obedience, his family was saved, and he became, he became more intimate with his God because of his obedience. And the question we posed was this, what is God asking you to build? What's God asking you to build? A relationship, a marriage, a friendship. What call to action has God brought into your life? And so as we continue today, I just want us to pray as we, as we begin. Father, I just pray for this time. And God, I pray for these next few moments. And God, I pray that you give me the words that you want me to say. But God, I pray for these hearts that are here. Not only do we pray for your conviction, Father, but we pray for honesty. We just pray that we will be 
open vessels, ready to receive and ready to respond to what you have. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The second kind of prompting that I see God using in our lives is this. I refer to it as a call of admonition. A call of admonition. Now, what's an admonition? Well, the dictionary defines it this way. It's a warning to correct some fault, a mild but earnest rebuke, a reprimand. It's advice for or against doing something. In other words, calls of, admon calls of admonition are God's way of letting us know what needs to change. It's God's way of letting us know what needs to be corrected in our lives. Maybe it's our behavior. Maybe it's our attitude. But it's God's way of telling us, hey man, things have got to change. They can't keep going the way they are. And one of the most dramatic examples of this took place in the life of David. Which brings us to our story this week. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And because of time, let me, let me just kind of summarize what's going on here. Most of us know about David. I mean, we know David was a shepherd boy. We know that growing up, he did in, incredible things for God. I mean, he killed a lion, he killed the bear. And as we know, he stood up against a giant by the name of Goliath, who was opposing God's people, and none of God's people would go. And so David said, well, then I'll go. And with a slingshot, took out the giant. And David became favored by God and became one of the most well-known and successful kings of Israel. But David also had a unique distinction that we read in the book of 1 Samuel. And it was this. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart. Men, wouldn't you love to be known as a man after God's own heart? Now, does that mean that we have to be perfect in order to get that dis distinction? Does it mean that we've got to get rid of all the sin that's in our life and we can't ever sin again? Is that what it means to to still be called a man after God's own heart? No, it's not, because of two reasons. One, because none of us are perfect, and we can't be until we are one day in heaven with the Father. But the second reason is, is because of the example we have for da from David's life. Because even though he was called a man after God's own heart, David was not perfect. In fact, when he got this call of man, of admonition from his life, David was serving as the king of Israel. This is what led up to that call. It was the season of the year when, when kings would go to war. And the Israelites, were, they were in, in battle against the Ammonites. And David's troops were out and they were fighting. The unusual thing was, Usually during this season, the king would be with his men. They would, they would be with his troops, but David wasn't. For whatever reason, David stayed back. So early one evening, he wakes up from a nap, goes up on his rooftop. He's kind of 
looking out over the kingdom. And he looks down and he notices a young woman who's basically taking a bath. And I always wondered why she was taking a bath where she could be seen, but I guess she didn't figure anybody would be up on the roof. I don't know. So she's taking a bath and, and all of a sudden, David can't take his eyes off of her. In fact, lust begins to set into his heart and his lust overrides his loyalty to God and his loyalty to her husband. His name was Uriah the Hittite. He was one of David's soldiers. The lady's name was Bathsheba. I was looking at that this morning and thought, how interesting, her name starts with Bath. And I guess I hadn't realized that before, but thought that was interesting. And so, David has Bathsheba brought into the palace, and David sleeps with her, and then a little time later, he begins to reap what he sowed, and she comes and says, hey, I just need to tell you I'm pregnant. And of course, the child is yours. So David didn't know quite what to do, and so this is what he, he does. He calls her husband, Uriah, in from the battlefield. He goes, look, he's been out fighting <laughs> for, for me and for our country, and he's been out there a long time. When he comes home, the first thing he's going to do is sleep with his wife. Now everybody will assume the child is his, and there won't be an issue. Well, there was an issue, and it was because Uriah was too loyal, both to God, both to David, and to the troops who were still out there fighting. And so in instead of going and sleeping with his wife, literally, he camped out at the gate and slept there. This really confused David. He, he didn't know what to do, so he even got Uriah drunk, thinking, if I can get him drunk, surely he'll go sleep with his wife. And that didn't work. And so now David's caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. And so the only thing he can think to do is he has or sets up to have Uriah killed. So he sends these secret orders back with Uriah to the front. And he gives these orders to the captain, and it basically says this, put Uriah at the very front lines where the battle is the fiercest. And when you put him there, I just want you to pull back the rest of the men. And they did that, and, and Uriah was killed. So now David is an adulterer, and he's a murderer. This guy that was called or said to have who was said to be a man after God's own heart, is an adulterer and a murderer. And a year goes by. And the secret of David's sin seems to be covered by the blanket of time. In fact, things seemed on the outside to be going pretty well. I mean, they continue to win battles. David continues to reorganize the government. But within David's heart, he's being torn apart. You see, God's beginning to deal with his sin. God's begin to give, he's begin to, he's giving him these, these promptings, these calls of admonition in his life so that David can, can, can deal with the sin that's there. Psalm 32 reveals 
his feelings during this awful period of time. Look, look at what he says. He says, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable, and it filled my days with frustration. All day and all night, your hand was heavy on me, God's cause of admonition. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day. You see, even though outwardly David could hide his sin and not deal with it, inwardly God kept whispering, God kept prompting him to deal with the sin. Now here's what we need to remember. What was hidden on earth is an open wound in heaven. In other words, what seems to be hidden on earth, what David tried to hide, what he could cover over that nobody else could see is, is an open wound in heaven. And we don't hide it from our God. Because David kept ignoring God's admonition, God sends that admonition through somebody. And he's a prophet by the name of Nathan. And he's a friend of David's. And Nathan tells David that God knows what he has done. And when he finally comes face to face with his sin, David falls to the ground and he cries out, I have sinned. You can almost hear the anguish that the guilt that has been building up in his life has caused him as you read Psalm 51. In fact, as you read through Psalm 51, you almost feel like you're invading David's private prayer room. Because listen to what he cries out. He says, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Is there anybody here that would like to have their guilt taken away today? To be purified, to be cleansed? He says, for I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. And maybe that's what unconfessed sin is doing to you and doing to your life. You may be able to hide it from your family. You may be able to hide it from your friends. You may be able to hide it from your coworkers. You may be able to hide it from your life group or from the church, but you can never hide it from God. Because even though what seems to be hidden on earth, you have to understand is an open wound in heaven. And God sees it, and God knows it, and he knows your heart. And eventually your sin and the guilt that's brought on because of that sin, it will take you out if you do not deal with it. It's that important. So that brings me to the question for today, and that's simply this. What word of admonition is God trying to whisper to you right now? Remember I said we need to pray for honesty today. We need to pray that our hearts are open and honest before our God. And so the question then is this, what, what words of admonition is God trying to whisper to you right now? I mean, what sin is inwardly destroying you, even though on the outside you've arranged things so things seem to appear fine? Well, let me ask you this, is the guilt that comes because of your sin 
Is it hurting and destroying your effectiveness as a believer, as a Christian? You see, the bottom line is this. All of us, I believe, receive, receive calls of admonition from God. Sometimes more than we'd like. But we all receive calls of admonition. In fact, if I were just to randomly select a few of you to come up here on stage, and if you were completely honest, I imagine every single one of you would have to say, you're right, I've got a similar story that God has been dealing with me in my life. You would say that at certain points in your life, you've received that rebuke, you've received that call of admonition from God. Or maybe you would say, you know what? God sent that one individual into my life that helped me to realize what I was doing. Let me tell you this. If you're not being mentored by somebody, you need to be. Why? Because you need somebody in your life that's going to slap you around in the face and say, look, you need to understand the consequences of what you're doing. There's not a person here that does not need somebody to be accountable to, including myself. And these guys in here that are elders of this church will testify to you that I call them. I want them to keep me accountable. And we hold each other accountable because there's no one that can be without accountability. Why? Because we need those times in our lives when people will come and honestly say, look what you're doing. Do you see the consequences? Do you see what is causing your family or your work? Or do you see the impact that it's making on your effectiveness as a believer? We need those people in our life. Maybe God's saying today, today to you, think about what you're doing. Count the cost of your decisions. Maybe he's saying, trust me, it's not worth the consequences. So again, what is God asking you to leave or abandon? Is it drunkenness? Is it drugs? Is it anger? Is it an unforgiving spirit? Is it lying? Is it cheating? Is it pornography? I mean, what's God asking you to get rid of in your life? What is his call of admonition upon you today? Here's the truth I want us to understand. You will never experience forgiveness of sin, freedom from guilt, contentment, and inner peace until you allow the, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection to pay the price for the sin that's separating you from God. You get that? You will never experience forgiveness of sin, freedom from guilt, contentment, and inner peace until you allow Jesus' death his burial, and his resurrection to pay the price for the sin that's separating you from God. Here's the problem I see. Too many people play around with sin like it's no big deal. I mean, we, we just treat sin today like it's no big deal. When my boys were growing up, well, my boys were growing up when they were smaller, and there would be times when I'd bring one or both in to, to discipline them. And as parents, you probably experience this as well. There were those times when after I would talk to them and, and, and I would begin the discipline process, they would look up and say, but I didn't know it was wrong. Yeah, right. Or they'd say, yeah, but my friends, 
they get away with it. Why can't I? You ever heard that from your kids? And here's the problem, man. We go to God and we do the exact same thing. We act like we had no idea that what we did was wrong. That it was a big deal. In fact, there are times we even convince ourselves that it's okay to sin in that instance. We've actually convinced ourselves that it's okay. Or to make matters worse, we start blaming our sin on everything from bad genes to the old phrase, everybody else is doing it. Let me tell you, it's time to wake up and realize that sin is a big deal. Why? Well, because of two things. One, because it separates us from God. And two, because it's our sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. Jesus died on the cross because of our sin, not his. It was our sin. And our sin separates us from God, and it put Christ on the cross. And let me tell you, that's a big deal. Sin is a big deal. And if Jesus hadn't willingly gone to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, you and I, we would be lost, and there would be no hope of being restored to the Father if it wasn't for Christ. Here's the thing. Someone had to pay the price for the sin that's in our life. And the reality is no amount of good deeds and no amount of money could ever pay that price. Again, that's why our freedom and forgiveness could only come through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. That's why Paul could write these awesome words. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We are free people. You get that? We're free, free of penalties, free of punishments, chalked up by all of our misdeeds. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the blood that was poured out, we have been set free when we have applied that to our life. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we obviously we are obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another as the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's Son, purges all of our sin, cleanses our sin. So how did... How did David deal with the sin that was separating him from God? When Nathan came to him, how did David deal with it then? Well, the first thing is this. He had to admit and accept the fact that he had sinned. I mean, that's the beginning point, isn't it? He had to admit and accept the fact that he had sinned. David writes these words in Psalm 32, 5. He says, I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. You see, through Nathan's intervention, David finally realized that he was responsible, that he made the choice. Nobody else. He made the choice. He had sinned against God. And let me tell you, things don't change in your life until we come to that same place and we realize and accept the fact that we have sinned. Yes, that may not be politically correct to say in today's society, but who cares? It's what the Bible says. And we need to start admitting when we're wrong and when we've sinned 
and understand it's a big deal because it separates us from God and it sent Christ to the cross. It's a big deal. We need to deal with it in our life. And so the first thing is this. Like David, we admit it. We admit that we're sinners and we accept that fact. But the second was this. He also had to repent and then confess his sin to God. Repentance is just a turnaround. It's that it's just you're going that direction and you you turn around and you come this way. It's that 180 in your life, that that about face in your life. It's that point where you say, I'm no longer gonna walk that way, I'm gonna walk this way. That's repentance. David had to do that in his life. He had to repent. And then he had to confess. He had to tell God what he had done. You see, verse 5 in Psalm 32 goes on to say this. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord, and you forgave me. And I love this phrase, all my guilt is gone. All my guilt is gone. Wouldn't you love to be able to just stand before God and say, thank you, Lord. All my guilt's gone. The guilt that's been destroying me and eating me and tearing me up on the inside is gone because you've taken it away. All my guilt is gone. And think about the sin in David's life. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And his guilt's gone. I love how Psalm 51 verses 1 to 7 puts David's thoughts as he repents and as he confesses. Look at what it says. O loving and kind God, have mercy. Have pity upon me and take away the awful stain of my sin. O wash me and cleanse me from this guilt. Let me be pure again. For I admit my sin, it haunts me day and night. It is against you and you alone I sinned and did this terrible thing. You deserve honesty from the heart. Yes, utter sincerity and truthfulness. Sprinkle me with the cleansing blood and I shall be clean again. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you need to be cleansed today? Do you need to be washed? Sprinkled in the blood of Jesus so that your guilt is gone. Do you need that today? I know I do in my life. You see, there's a very important principle that we have to understand when it comes to confession, and it is this. When we confess our sin to God, we don't ask God to agree with our assessment of the sin. You understand that? When we confess to God, we're not asking God to agree with our assessment of the sin. We simply agree with his. That's confession. In other words, no rationalizing, no justifying. We're not trying to get God to somehow see where we were right and he was wrong. No. When we confess, we are coming before him and simply agreeing with his assessment, which is simply this, you sinned. You sinned. You see, God does not ask us to confess our sin because he needs to know we have sinned, but because he knows that we need to know we have sinned. You see, the truth is, he already knows. 
You're not confessing so that he knows. He already does. We confess because he knows we need to know we've sinned. You as parents, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but there were very few times when our boys were young, especially Kyle. Kyle's a lot more transparent and open. Uh, Brandon sometimes was a lot more sneaky. But uh, uh, Kyle was very transparent, very open. There was very few times, especially when Lucy was the school nurse. Yeah, <laughs> it always helps. Uh, but there were very few times when they would get in trouble that I didn't know about it, that I would find out and I would know. And when they would come home, even though I already knew, it meant so much more to me as their dad when they came and said, hey, Dad, I need to talk to you. I got in trouble at school, and this is what happened. Now, I, I probably already knew it. In most cases, I did. But you know what? It meant so much more to me to hear it from them because for them to tell me, meant that they were honestly sorry for what they had done. You see, when we confess, it's not because God needs to know. It's because we need to know. But there's another principle that I think is important, that is this. Like David, we need to remember that even though God hates the sin, get this, he still loves the sinner. He still loves the sinner. I mean, during the time that David suffered from the guilt of his sin, God's attitude towards him didn't change. I mean, God continued to love him. In fact, the very guilt that he was feeling was really God's spirit calling him to repentance. You see, God still loves the sinner. He hates the sin, loves the sinner. Here's the thing. If you feel today like God can't, he won't, he doesn't love you because of the sin in your life, then you are believing the lie of the enemy. Because our enemy wants you to think that what you are doing or have done is too big for God to forgive. And because of that, he can't love you anymore. Some of you have asked me in the past, how can some people who have been Christians for such a, a long time and be so close to God all of a sudden just kind of go off the deep end. I mean, how does that happen? And you know, it's a tough one. I don't always know, and I'm not sure why, but I think this is probably one of the reasons, and that is this, because they convince themselves that what they have done is too big and God can't love them anymore. And if he can't love them, then they might as well continue to do what they're doing. And when that happens, the enemy has you. He's got you. Understand. God may hate the sin, but he loves the sinner. He loves you. Never forget, loves the reason Jesus came to this planet and loves the reason he hung on a cross. Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to. The cross he bore should have been ours, but he chose to die in our place. Why? Because he loves us that much. For God so loved the world that he gave. And no matter what you do or have done, God will always be there with open arms, loving us and waiting for us to come back home. Now, here's the part of that that most people don't want to hear, but it's the other part of truth. And that is this, because God loves that much, 
He will not force you to come home. He will not twist your arm and drag you back. Because of his love, it's your choice. Because of love, he gave us a free will. And because of love, if you choose, he will allow you to be sentenced to hell because that's your choice. It doesn't mean he loves you any less. It just means he loves you enough to allow you to, to make your choices. That's the free will he gives us. And that's the hard part. That's the part we don't like to understand. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. When the prodigal son ran, the father waited with open arms, waiting for his son to return. You know, the interesting part about those parables is in the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd ran off to find that which was lost. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman literally scoured the house to find that one which was lost. But in the parable of the son, the son was already a part of the family. He was already a son. And the father loved enough to allow the son to make his choice. And the choice was that he left. And so the father didn't, in the parable, if you know, he didn't run after the son. He allowed the son to go, hoping and praying and loving the whole time, waiting for his son to return. And his son finally did. And his father was there with open arms. That's the way our God is. He's there with open arms. Let's reflect. As Christians, none of us has to suffer from the agony of guilt and the agony that that guilt brings into our lives. None of us have to continue to believe Satan's lies that only keep us enslaved. Because when we realize what Christ has done for us, and when we open our hearts to the calls of admonition that God brings, get this, guilt will be replaced with incredible joy. I love these words of Psalm 32, 1 and 2, where it says, what, excuse me, what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Now here's what we need to understand. What we do in these next five minutes may be the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. Why? Because it is time to be honest with God. It's time to come face to face with the Father and simply say, I'm a sinner. And God, I need to be cleansed. You see, maybe God has brought a call of admonition on your life. Let me tell you, I struggled at the end of the week deciding how I needed to end this service and end this time. And this morning, God kind of cleared the fog and he said, this is what I want you to do. And so this is what we're going to do. And the first service, it was incredible. If you remember back some of the scriptures we've just read, how many times it talked about washing, how many times it talked about cleansing, how many times it talked about 
what God has done. I, I want to read a scripture to you out of 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Look at what it says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify us, cleanse us, wash us from all unrighteousness. Some of you will remember this. When, we were in, when I was in college at Ozark, on the north side of the campus, there was a huge field that then led down to this huge creek. And um, because that was a low area and low lands, when it rained, man, it would just be really muddy. And so we would go out there in the afternoons and we'd play mud football. And we would be so muddy, you'd look at somebody going, I'm not sure if I know you. You know, what was your name again? <laughs> you know, you, you just couldn't recognize me, the, the person because of the dirt, because of the grime, because of the mud. But we would leave the field after playing and, and we would go and I would get in the shower. And when I got in the shower and the water began to hit me, it began to cleanse me. And as I was being cleansed, I could watch the dirt just run off and go down the drain. But when I was clean, I was clean. When I'd been washed, I was washed. No more dirt, no more grime, no more mud, cleansed. And that's what John is saying. When you confess, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You are washed and you are set free. And so this morning, we just want to symbolize that in our lives. And so I have a bowl and a towel on this side, and I have a bowl and a towel on this side, and they have water in it. And here's my challenge to you. If God has been giving you a call of admonition, if God has been working on your life and on your heart, and you know there are things in your life that need cleansed, that need washed, it's time to be honest. It's time to confess. And I want you just to get up. And I want you to go to one of the sides and just kind of wash your hands and dry them, symbolizing in your life that you've been washed by the blood of Christ. Adam's going to play and we're going to reflect. And I just want you to get up where you're at, if that's you, and just come and feel that cleansing in your life. What God wants to do for you. Let's reflect.